Saudi Arabia has one of the world's largest migrant worker populations, but it has mostly avoided scrutiny of its treatment of this workforce. The kingdom professes that its new labor relation initiative will reform its kafala system, which is emblematic of an oppressive power dynamic in which employers have extensive control over migrant workers' visas and contracts. But this initiative is really just a cosmetic reform to the kafala sponsorship system, and one which still has serious human rights implications. Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. Welcome everyone. My name is Michelle Galino, International Legal Associate at the Human Rights Foundation, and you're listening to Eyes on Saudi, our special series this week as part of our regular Dissidents and Dictators podcast to highlight important human rights issues in Saudi Arabia, particularly as world leaders gather for the G20 summit this weekend, which is coincidentally being hosted by Saudi Arabia. Our aim is to spotlight the great lengths that the Saudi regime goes to in order to improve its image globally and whitewash its grave human rights record. Today, I'm joined by Bethany Al-Haydri, Executive Director of the Saudi American Justice Project, to discuss how exactly the kafala system in Saudi Arabia works and how the regime is using the latest purported reform to the system to, in fact, draw attention away from its human rights abuses. And we'll also look at some of the other cosmetic reforms that the regime has implemented in order to whitewash its human rights violations. Bethany, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation and helping us dissect this new announcement and its true human rights implications for affected individuals in Saudi Arabia. And I, I know that you're no stranger to these issues in the kingdom. You spent nearly a decade in Saudi Arabia conducting research on human rights issues and reporting for news outlets, and you have yourself personally dealt with the ins and outs of another type of system there, the male guardianship system that we'll get into a bit later on in the episode. So it's great to have your informed perspective here. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. And again, it, it is always a pleasure to create awareness around these issues. So I appreciate it, Michelle. Thank you. So before we get into the weeds of the most recent news about reforms to the kafala system that I alluded to, let's start with the basics. Can you first give our audience an overview of both the workforce in Saudi Arabia? Because it it would seem that even with its massive numbers of migrant workers, Saudi Arabia has really largely been able to dodge intense investigations into the treatments uh, treatment of these workers. So an overview of that, and then also of the basics of the kafala system itself as it relates to these workers and the different categories of people impacted. Absolutely, sure. Um, yeah, it's Saudi's not exactly an easy country to understand, and like like we've mentioned in other in other realms, what is what is announced as reform and and what actually happens on the ground is is completely different. So, understanding the kafala system is incredibly important, and um, just for basics on what the kafala system is, it's it's essentially a system of sponsorship. And it applies to every single foreign resident within the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So they come under the complete control of their sponsor, which is often called a kafil. Um, and this applies to foreign individuals who do come to the kingdom to work. Um, in that case, if you are an employee, your company or your boss would be called your kafil or your sponsor. 
but it also applies to foreign women who marry a citizen or resident of the kingdom where their husband um, would become their kefil or sponsor and also would be the sponsor um, of the children. Um, and also it applies to children of Saudi women because Saudi women are not permitted to pass citizenship onto their children. So the Saudi mother in certain ca- cases can can be the kefil of a, of a child that they've had. Now, the sponsor exercises significant ownership rights over the lives of the person that they sponsor. So the sponsor alone has the power to keep the immigration status of their dependent uh, up to date and failure to um, renew um, someone's status results in the freezing of their financial services, their bank accounts. They have the inability to obtain medical treatment, inability to file certain lawsuits or cases, um, and they can face you know, arrest or deportation if they're found or carded and found to be illegal. Um, the sponsor alone also has the power to, and I think this is probably the most stereotypical and known part of the Kafala system, they alone hold the power to permit um, anyone under their their sponsorship to exit or even re-enter Saudi Arabia. But they also um, have to approve moving to a new household. Um, they have to sign them to exit out of prison in the case that they're arrested. And they have to approve any changes to their job or work. Um, and in the past, we've seen that if a foreign wife leaves the household without her husband's permission, then the sponsor could register has, as her as a runaway. And with that, that individual could be subject to arrest or deportation. So as you can see, um, the system is easily used to exploit, entrap, or coerce individuals into compliance and servitude. Um, So like in 2019, Department of State had had published correctly that the kafala system needs to be reformed as it exasperates human trafficking risks and that individuals under sponsorship were unable to exercise their right to remove themselves from dangerous situations. So that's why we refer to the system as a modern form of slavery, and it has been referred as such in both the U.S. Congress and European parliaments. And why several see this system as a violation of the United Nations Convention on Slavery, which Saudi Arabia did sign and ratify, but is in stark violation of as um, slavery within the convention is defined as, quote, exercising any of the rights of ownership over an individual and where signatories to the convention, which includes Saudi, um, are supposed to dedicate themselves to the complete abolition of slavery in all its forms. So, I mean, there's clearly been documentation about the financial, psychological, and and physical abuse effects of the kafala system. And related to this topic of power dynamics that you just touched on, or abusive power dynamics, Mm -hmm. I should say, uh, can you speak to issues of classism under the kafala system? Does this system impact different groups of people that fall under it differently? I mean, can we say definitively that workers' treatment and discrimination under the kafala system might be linked to or actually based on, for instance, their country of origin's ties with Saudi Arabia? Oh, absolutely. Um, I would say that what we see is that the most impacted population is largely female, largely domestic workers from developing and largely impoverished nations. So um, employees often entrap and don't permit domestic workers to exit the home, and they are fully protected under the law in doing that. Um, So you know, there were previous announcements that taking a passport is illegal and workers were required to have a day off. But what you see inside of the home, especially so for especially domestic workers, drivers, um, guards, 
farmers. Uh, these are the people who are who are dealing with the worst violations, and they come from largely developing nations or impoverished nations. So, you know, inside of the household, there's no regulatory enforcer beyond the kefil who has the ultimate power. So, if a domestic worker or a driver were to run to the police because they were being victim of abuse, um, the police would still be required to call the sponsor to come and pick them up. Um, so what, we, what we've seen is um, there are countries, particularly powerful Western nations with strong relationships with Saudi Arabia, um, that have much more of a diplomatic push and where the relationship matters more to Saudi, um, they're completely treated differently. So the majority of workers within Saudi Arabia are from Asia, um, with large numbers also coming from Africa, especially Egypt, and increasingly more from East Africa, like Ethiopia, Kenya. Uganda, and there are categories of workers who have different rights based on their job classification to travel or change employers. And I think a really, really good example of the reality on the ground is to take a simple look at public executions in Saudi Arabia, right? Um, there's just under under 200 per year, um, and foreign workers actually make up about 50% of public executions in Saudi Arabia, despite being around 25% of the population. So the majority are executed for nonviolent crimes, right? Um, but despite in cases of U.S. citizens and British nationals actually c committing murder in recent years, there's not a documented case of a U.S. or British citizen being publicly beheaded in Saudi Arabia, even for violent crimes. However, there are large numbers of Syrian, Yemeni, Pakistani, um, Egyptian nationals who are executed in Saudi Arabia and mostly for nonviolent drug-related issues. Um, so I think that's a pretty shocking statistic, which gives a very good window of the reality on, on the treatment of, of crime and, and legal enforcement within Saudi Arabia and who becomes victim um, of certain policies and who's protected from those. Absolutely. I, I wanted to circle back to your mention of, of human trafficking um, and the fact that human traffickers in Saudi Arabia primarily are exploiting foreigners. Um, and uh, Saudi Arabia was ranked earlier this year as a tier two watchless mm -hmm. country by the U.S. State Department's Trafficking in Persons report. Um, can you elaborate a bit more on how precisely the kafal system then is responsible for contributing to these human trafficking violations that we're seeing in Saudi Arabia. Absolutely. Well, I think a large part of it, again, that's a modern form of slavery. So those two terms, human trafficking and modern forms of slavery, are often used under the same umbrella. So when you give people this much power um, over those that they sponsor, um, especially especially the right to prohibit them from leaving a country um, or getting access to, to proper legal um recourse or help that they need in dangerous situations, well, then you you give the sponsor the ability to easily traffic and exploit individuals. So um, in the more traditional understanding of trafficking, you know, it op often happens that people will be brought into the country, into Saudi Arabia by a sponsor who would then either lend them out to work for others in their free time um, against their will, or even force them into prostitution or other work outside of the contractual agreement. Um, so some sponsors would, for example, require monthly payments from the individuals that they bring in. Um, so they would make money off of their work. And um, that's more of the traditional way that it happens. But I think it's also important that the, the UN definition of human trafficking is understood. And at its most minimum definition, trafficking can be like the simple harboring or entrapment of individuals by threat or coercion, 
or by an abuse of power for the purpose of simple exploitation. It doesn't necessarily mean monetary exploitation. It could be forcing someone into a marriage or forcing someone to remain in a marriage. So, you know, a lot of the women and mothers who are threatened by their husbands who are also their sponsors or fathers are forced to remain in situations of abuse. Several are, are subject to marital rape, which by the way is not a crime in Saudi Arabia. And they're forced to remain in these horrific um, situations in order not to lose their children or be deported or exploited further. So um, the extreme discrimination in Saudi courts against women, non-Muslims and foreigners obviously exasperates this reality for, for people on the ground. Um, so, yeah, uh, human trafficking in the traditional sense is, is very easy um, to do under the kafala system, but also in the, the more like broader understanding, it, it, it's happening all the time within Saudi Arabia. Right. So I, I want to focus now then on the labor relation initiative, which Saudi Arabia announced earlier this month and which is set to be implemented in March of next year, 2021. Mm-hmm. What are what are the basics of this initiative? Can you outline those for us? Yeah, so it, the Labor Relations Initiative was announced just ahead of the, the G20, obviously, and following significant international pressure to end the Kafala system. And it grants, well, it hasn't happened yet, right? So we don't know how it'll be in practice, but it does uh, allegedly grant certain reforms to a limited section of private sector employees. Um, so in these um, in these reforms, the private sector employees would not need to ask for their boss's permission to to exit or re-enter the country, which was seen as one of the most abusive elements of the system. But they um, still would have to make a request to the authorities who could deny exit if any debts or fines were outstanding. So again, there's some limitation to how that could be um, executed in practice. But um, the workers would also be able to transfer sponsorship when their contract ends without needing their existing sponsor's consent, um, provided they gave notice and specific measures, which have not yet been defined. Um, and other details, such as the length of the notice period, that's unclear at the moment. Um, but local media did report that workers would need to complete a year before they'd be allowed to transfer. So the Saudi government specifically announced alongside this initiative that it would not apply to around 4 million of the most vulnerable and abused individuals within the kingdom. So this, they stated that it would not apply to domestic workers, would not apply to drivers, would not apply to farmers, gardeners, or guards. So it also does not apply to family members. So people outside of the umbrella of employers who are still under the kafala system. So this means wives and children would still be easily entrapped, trafficked, kidnapped, and abused. Um, so that's some of the large limitations of this initiative. I mean, so earlier I, I had used the words purported and cosmetic to describe this reform, mm. and you just used the word alleged. Um, it, it seems then, like based on what you just described, that we can mostly paint a pretty grim picture of the initiative's capacity for change. But is is there also any hope that it will have an effect of actually positively impacting the lives of those who are suffering the most under the current kafal system? Or is this really just like you described, more surface level cosmetic reform with serious human rights implications rather than actual substantive reform that can truly help anyone involved on a a more meaningful scale? Right. I would call it a missed opportunity. I mean, Mm. we see that that um, you know, even with male guardianship, and I know we're coming to this later, but 
there are opportunities and re- there's a recognition of a need of reform. And then when they, they announce it, it completely misses the mark. And I say this, this would impact a, a limited minority of private sector employees who are largely from a higher socioeconomic status. And certainly this impacts Western nationals at an alarmingly higher ratio than nationals from developing nations. But, you know, you'll see teachers, maybe some private sector healthcare workers, um, individuals working at banks or international companies who will now be able to tout like some, some form of reform because they're able to enter and exit the country without their sponsor. Um, while the abuse and trafficking of the most vulnerable of society will absolutely continue. And again, beyond employees, families, particularly women and children who are under the kafala system will continue to be exploited and abused. So I would say that it, 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 it is a change for those who it largely did not impact prior, but it impacts a strategic population that helps Saudi Arabia's global agenda at the moment. Right. And one of the things that we're really intent on doing at the Human Rights Foundation is spotlighting how exactly dictatorships employ various methods in order to whitewash their crimes. And this is also, of course, a common tactic used by Saudi Arabia, as we've seen through its its hosting of large-scale concerts, uh, sporting events, purchasing of sport teams, and now, of course, as you mentioned, hosting the G20 summit. How is the Saudi regime using this alleged reform to the kafala system as a way to draw attention away from its human rights abuses. And, you know, it, it would seem that the timing of this new initiative is is perhaps a bit suspect with the G20 summit only days away now. Given that this announcement was made shortly before the upcoming summit, what are your thoughts as well on the perhaps very convenient timing of the announcement regarding this reform in relation to what I mentioned about detracting attention from Saudi Arabia's human rights record? Right, right. No, you're absolutely correct. Um And as you know, Saudi Arabia has been on a purge to improve its global image. Mm -hmm. And I'd say beyond just the timing of the G20, um, economically, it's a must for the country now more than it ever was before. So the Saudi economy is in an extremely difficult position. Um, They're still completely dependent on oil. Fresh water reserves are running out. Uh, Climate change is impacting the land. Salaries of Saudi are being cut. Retirement of government employees has been slashed into. Taxes are being raised. And then COVID-19 happened as well. So the G20 is um, is a opportunity for uh, Saudi Arabia to sort of put itself on the global scale to work on an, a, attracting investment. And right now, as we saw when Vision 2030 was initially announced, um, a large part of that vision was attracting international investment. And I think Saudi Arabia needs that now more than ever before. And you know, since uh, Mohammed bin Salman took over power by coup in, in 2017. He undertook this global campaign to propagate himself as a reformer and as the kingdom was of undergoing unprecedented change. You know, they invested millions into putting out misinformation, hiring comms firms uh, to clean up their image and lobbyists and portraying these outward displays of, of reform um, happening in the kingdom, which applied again to the privileged of Saudi society Um such as you've mentioned these concerts, uh, sporting events um, with Western performers and alleged changes to the dress code and now new travel rights. Um, Honestly, the only unprecedented change um, was that repression in the kingdom now happens to anyone indiscriminately, no matter how senior, well-connected or powerful an individual is. Um, We saw like 
so many human rights activists have been detained and silenced, tortured, even killed, um, and peaceful peaceful dissidents dismembered in diplomatic compounds and the Saudi-led war in Yemen has been a humanitarian disaster and an embarrassment to the regime who has, you know, with some of the world's best weaponry and, and training and support from, from, you know, the United States and, and um, other, other Western nations, unfortunately, supporting it, but um, they couldn't manage to subdue this rebellion in one of the world's most impoverished nations, and they've left it in tatters. So I think these are unprecedented times of egregious human rights violations. So it's been even more aggressive on the campaign to improve their image. Um, but they also need to function in a global economy and attract foreign investment, all while maintaining an authoritarian regime. So the global econ economy is moving away from this model um, and the economic blanket, which has protected the regime, is being pulled away. Um, so if you take note of these, these sort of superficial reforms that Saudi Arabia has made and announced, they come out of necessity and they appeal to the elite. So it started kind of with changing the weekend, you know, from Thursday um, and Friday to more something that aligned more with the global uh, economy and women driving, Saudi women being given the right to travel. And now we're, we're, we're granting elite workers certain privileges, all while maintaining these loopholes to keep the status quo. So, um, yeah, I think there's, like you've said, there's been excellent academic work done, um, published by uh, professors at Sciences Po in ways which modern authoritarian regimes maintain and, and remain in power. And a large factor of that is this ideological manipulation, but um, alongside keeping the elite uh, either silenced or satisfied. Um, but a big part of that, too, is keeping the economy stable for the masses. And I think that's a large part of these reforms is in a large motivation be behind this global campaign for legitimacy and and. Um, I believe a lot of these basis reforms, as you said, are trying to whitewash abuse, but also attract foreign money and to keep the Saudi elite living in a bubble of privilege while increasing suppression to maintain an absolute long monarchy. And it's, it's not really sustainable, but it is interesting to see how this is all panning out. I, I want to highlight another oppressive system that you touched on a bit ago, um, one that still exists in Saudi Arabia, the male guardianship system, mm -hmm. which... I know you've had your own experience with you actually founded the Saudi American Justice Project to advocate for and support women and children in situations of abuse in Saudi Arabia after you escaped to the United States with mm -hmm. your daughter late last year. So based on your own experience and that of your daughter, can you speak to the overlap in how both the kafala system and the male guardianship system can actually trap people in Saudi Arabia? And, and what have you found are the similarities and differences in the ways that workers are treated under the kafala system and the way that women and children are treated under the male guardianship system, for instance? Right. Um, it's nearly identical. I, I think that the major differentiating point is that the kafala system applies to foreigners and the male guardianship applies to Saudi nationals. Um, and, you know, it was the kafala system that initially trapped me in Saudi Arabia, and it was the male guardianship system that applied to my daughter. Now, my daughter is a dual Saudi and U.S. citizen, but um, if you are a child of a Saudi male, <laughs> then you are automatically um, under that that your father's guardianship, right, from birth. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference. A lot of a lot of the same limitations apply. However, 
Saudi women just did an incredible job organizing to fight that system, the system of male guardianship, and to make the global population aware of it. So I was just so impressed um, by the women's rights activists who did raise this issue. Um, unfortunately, the several of them are now being tortured in prisons. But um, again, the women who were protected by their, their status were able to speak out, um, but those in vulnerable and dangerous situations had to remain silent. And I think that that's kind of how it is now. Those limited reforms happened without really threatening the status quo with male guardianship. But what I, I so admire um, about Lujain al-Hathlul's work is, you know, she was educated abroad, came from a very well-educated family who was well-off in a higher socioeconomic status. And she was, you know, she had, she had a supportive family and a kind male guardian. Um, she also worked so hard to make herself aware of what happened to Saudi women who were financially struggling or who didn't have um, the same privileges of having a kind male guardian. And um, she raised her voice for all. And I think um, that was what made her such a threat to the regime. Um, it's human, human nature not to see you know, violations which don't impact us or not to care about them. And I think this is why um, the traction on getting reforms to the kafala system have really taken so long. Um, so reforms and awareness of what happens under the kafala system uh, haven't really been in the public eye because, well, women and children have been, have been stuck under the kafala system. A lot of them don't ever get out. And um, the impacted population is often entrapped, often doesn't have the financial means to raise their voice or is, is in a vulnerable position. So I think as we start to see more of, of the, the individuals who come from a, a privileged majority, I would say that like being a Western national, being a U.S. citizen gives me more um, of, a, of a privilege. But there's, you know, there's people who are not from from Western nations or wealthy nations who are who are treated horrifically and in abhorrent ways in Saudi Arabia. And they don't really, you know, they're, they're not able to get out a lot of times. They're not able to, to raise their voice or be heard. So I think it is important that these issues are addressed by people who've been impacted and, and can open their eyes and, and see what happens on the ground, but also like use their platform to speak out and raise awareness and make some changes. Because um, you know, it's it's easy to just sort of remain in your in your bubble and keep going with your daily lives because, as you can see with Lou Jane, she was aware of everything, but that that was a massive sacrifice. She she's on hunger strike now in prison, and um, but it is so powerful when when people speak out for everyone and fight for the rights of everyone, and it has to be done. Otherwise, nothing will change. Mm. And linked to both of these systems and mm. issues are the legal aspects surrounding them, and and. I'd like to take a moment to address these because I know they're quite complex and the judicial system in Saudi Arabia, even outside of these systems we've been talking about and outside of this labor relation initiative more specifically, uh, the judicial system might be a lot to grasp, especially for anyone who's familiar with more straightforward legal systems. So let's talk about that. Saudi Arabia follows uh, the Sharia law and has not actually codified its laws. It's not written them down to some sort of binding or authoritative form of, of hard law, which means judges then are given some discretion in how they apply the law, ruling instead on the basis of their understanding of Islamic jurisprudence tradition. And I imagine that this also means that announcements like the one made this month about the labor relation initiative are really only representative of policy changes, you know, rather than anything being codified. So does, does that very fact make for an even more 
precarious system of introducing actual substantive reform in the kingdom, reform that will be abided by both in name and in practice, and that can actually be tracked? Right. Um, I think like that's a, that's a lot <laughs> in a question. What I would say first and foremost is that like it is it's slightly problematic to say that you know Saudi Arabia alleges allegedly follows Sharia law, right. <laughs> but um, I would say it, it, it's important to note that like it's not necessarily Islamic law itself that's problematic because there are countless interpretations of Sharia law. Um, some of them uphold and maintain human rights, and others clearly violate principles of human right, right? But I would say that Saudi Arabia in particular exercises one of the most rigid interpretations of a political Islamic law in the world. And it is specifically how the Saudi regime manipulates and uses Islam um, to legitimize and, and, and abuse, which I see being the source of, of, of the problem here. But continuing on that, um, yes, judges... Uh, there are certain things I would say, like a, a royal decree is somewhat an equivalent to, to being a codified law, um, but it's not really applied in practice sometimes. But um, the personal status laws are not codified. So yes, th these reforms are made and, and, and announcements can be you know, issued. A minister has the right to, to, to push for legislation. There's, there's different ways to go about legislation, but the royal decree is, is what's written and can be cited. Um, but what we, we find being problematic is there are, even in, in some some um, some policies or, or like secret policies that are internal policies that certain departments will abide by, but they don't allow the public to see it. Or there will be announcements that happen, such as recently, um, earlier, a couple months ago, there was an announcement that came out about the criminalization of human trafficking, right? Mm -hmm. And this is, it is a law and it can be done in practice, right? Um, it's an act, but they're left a legal loophole. So individuals could be convicted of human trafficking, um, but the clause was that a court could exempt in individuals who had violated human trafficking laws so long as they were trafficking a family member. <laughs> so... As you can see, and what we what we see in practice is that policies will be announced, acts will be announced, laws will be changed and formulated, reforms will happen, but there seems to always be a loophole or a way out or an escape clause so that the law is applied as it as it wants to be when it's convenient to whoever's applying it to certain people, and when it's not convenient, it's not applied because they almost contradict themselves. Right? It's mm -hmm. like the announcement for, for the reforms to male guardianship laws. Well, that's fantastic. Women are able to get their own passports and travel, but that's pretty meaningless when it is still, um, it is still illegal to disobey your husband or your parents. Um, and you can face legal consequences for that. So, so you've given someone the right to, let's say drive in writing, you've given someone the right to travel if they're a female However, they don't have the right to disobey their husband. So if their husband goes and files a case against you in the courts that you, you know, disobeyed him by getting a job or working or go, you know, you can face serious consequences. You can lose custody of your children. They take it as a very serious offense, especially when it's against a woman, right? Mm -hmm. So this is what I think is the problematic aspect of it is that, yes, judges are allowed to, in the personal status law, just, you know, 
make rulings at their own discretion and based on Sharia law, and this is loosely, loosely based on their own interpretation of Sharia law, judges, again, can only be male by law in Saudi Arabia and can only have studied at, at um, Saudi Islamic uh, universities, or they have to do some special process to be accepted, and they are only appointed to power um, by by um, by the existing regime. So it's not an independent judiciary, and it doesn't have any diversity of thoughts. So you get really similar practices and really similar rulings, and um, really hard to track that. And it's not a common law country. So, for example, when when there was um, a celebrated ruling that a woman was allowed to live outside of the home and everybody, you know, in, in local media was celebrating it and saying, yay, you know, look at us. We've allowed women to go outside of the home without permission now. But that's sort of alleging that Saudi Arabia is a common law country, which it just, according to their own laws of procedure before Sharia courts, that's not how it works. It's not a common law. It doesn't work on judicial precedent. So it's just hard. I think it's so misunderstood and so hard for people without an in-depth understanding of what actually happens on the ground and in practice and in the law. Um, and so much of that is not available um, to the global community that they're just taking these announcements at face value, assuming that things function um, in a similar way in their own understanding as they would in the United States or the UK. It's, it's not a common law country. So, um, yeah, I, I see that as being incredibly problematic in the way that it's understood. Mm. Based on what you just said and based on past reforms in Saudi Arabia, and again, I, I use the word reforms with quotation marks around mm. it. Um, <laughs> can you describe or elaborate a bit more on some of the legal loopholes um, specifically related to the kafala system's migrant workers um, and the legal loopholes through which human rights abuses can then just be perpetuated under the guise of reform? Right. Well, I think the, the, the clearest issue with this recent uh, alleged reform, right, was that the the Saudi government specifically announced that this does not apply to, and they listed it out, um, domestic workers, drivers, farmers, guards. So, so as you can see, like the most vulnerable, the people most in need of the change, the people who are most abused in the system, um, it's not, that's not even a loophole. Like I, I felt like, gosh, I don't know if Saudi Arabia's like PR team is is like struggling here, but like it seemed like a pretty obvious um, failure in that announcement. They could have been smarter about it, but I also think that it's really important for Saudi Arabia to maintain um, some degree of control over the the masses, and I do think that that. Um, there, the Saudis do have to appeal to the global community, and in that ruling, and in this, it was not that aspect of it is more for the Saudi masses to still be able to kind of control their home, you know, in the same way that male guardianship applied to the privileged of of, of Saudi Saudi women who had good guardians, men were still able now to control the women in their home. And I think a large part, and if you guys are looking at how um, authoritarian regimes maintain power and sustain power, that's a really, really important factor. So we do have this aspect of like maintaining global control and and their their image, but also at the same time, they're doing a balancing act, trying to keep, you know, the Saudi masses um, happy. And that means like men being able to control women and and feel like they're the 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 lead of the house at the cost 
of the rights of Saudi women and um, employers being able to exploit low cost help and, and Saudis having domestic help and privileges in their own home at the cost and violation of the people impacted. So I think you what you're seeing is a balancing act between a need to like appease the global community, attract foreign investment, but also to keep the Saudi masses having some degree of control over their household so that the regime maintains some form of control over the population, especially with every all these, you know, factors that are happening right now. Bethany, I want to end our discussion today with a, a call to action for our listeners, for our community. What can the international community do to support victims of the kafala system, recognizing that this latest initiative is merely a cosmetic reform? And maybe even more immediately, what is your call to action as the G20 summit is being hosted by Saudi Arabia this very weekend? Okay. So I guess on the more general, what can the international community do? Um, businesses need to understand um, that if they're coming to work in Saudi Arabia, if they're investing in Saudi Arabia, unless they themselves are doing the groundwork. Um, so I owned a small business and I, I did all, um, the majority of, of that and knew who was working for me, knew what we were doing, knew what our policies were. So for some of the larger businesses just coming from outside, um, if that's not the case and they're not doing the groundwork, then they are likely benefiting from this modern form of slavery. So there's an ethical obligation on companies um, move, moving to or investing in Saudi Arabia or who currently are in Saudi Arabia to make sure that they aren't being sponsors or complicit in upholding modern forms of slavery. And the larger the company, the more likely it is that they're involved in this. And I think aggressive policies and legislation need to be put in place, urging Saudi to abolish not reform the kafala and male guardianship system. It's, it's ridiculous to speak of reform to a modern form of slavery. They merit nothing less than total abolition. Um, and our politicians need to publicly be condemning and raising the issue when they engage with Saudi authorities. Additionally, more awareness on these issues need to be put out. Um, so we need human rights organizations such as yourself um, and activists to rally on these issues and raise awareness um, to outline the laws to show how this impacts everyone from Saudi Arabia to America to Kenya to Indonesia and everywhere in between. And for the G20 summit, I would say if, if people, first of all, simply wouldn't participate, I think that's a starting point um, because there's no point in pretending that Saudi Arabia, an authoritarian regime and violent suppressor of freedom of expression, there's no point in pretending they're capable of leading the necessary discussions or hosting G20 that will will create meaningful waves, especially within its own country. But I would say that, and I understand, especially for, for politicians, some have to participate in the conference. So I would say it's a time to, for people to use their platform to call for the release of political prisoners and, and prisoners of conscience in Saudi Arabia, to call for meaningful reforms to happen, and to hold, hold Saudi Arabia accountable for these violations. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And let's hope these points are actually thoroughly examined and addressed by international actors both this weekend and going forward, and that pressure is placed on the Saudi government to fully, as you said, abolish the kafala system. Thanks so much for coming on our podcast today, Bethany, and letting us learn from you. And we'll certainly be following both the direction of this labor relation initiative and the kafala system 
as well as your own story and your work to address human rights issues and abuses in Saudi Arabia. So thank you so much. I appreciate you having me and thank you for the opportunity.